Good afternoon and welcome to Living Permaculture on KDNK. I'm your host, Vanessa Harmony, here with today's guest, Jared Kirst. My co-host, Jerome Osentowski, is unable to join us today because he's scrambling with some prevailing permaculture duties, but I'll give an update on his behalf about Central Rocky Mountain Permaculture Institute at the end of the program. Our guest today, Jared Kirst, is president of Rivendell Farms Incorporated, a regenerative agriculture farm in Spring Valley of Glenwood Springs, where he produces bluegrass sod, historically, and now grass-fed and finished beef branded with his grandfather's original cattle brand, Plus Lazy K. Since 2018, I've learned a great deal from Jared about turf and pasture production and maintenance, soil building, and in the last three years, the extraordinary ability of holistically planned adaptive rotational grazing with cattle to heal, or as Jared would say, to renourish the earth. More on that shortly. Let me introduce today's topics by saying that I've always been a good little environmentalist, striving to think globally and act locally, reduce free to use recycle, conserve water, and minimize my carbon footprint. But lately, I've observed some alarmingly reductionist approaches in addressing global environmental challenges that makes me wonder if I'm on board with the quote-unquote environmentalists any longer, or if I've joined a new league of radical and rational regenerative farming advocates. So today I wanted to invite Jared on the program to do some quote-unquote myth-busting on two environmental topics I heard recently in the media. Jared, welcome to the program. Thanks, Vanessa. Well, um, I'll just say I'm using the term myth loosely, but uh, mostly we're just talking about some reductionist approaches in environmental challenges. So the first myth I'd like to crack into is the impact of cattle production on global warming. Eating beef and raising cattle have been getting a bad rap lately because cattle belch or burp or emit methane gas that contributes to global warming. Furthermore, environmentalists argue that cattle production displaces quote-unquote natural ecosystems that would be carbon sequestering. I heard a story recently about scientists experimenting with different types of cattle feed and supplements to try to reduce beef methane emissions. But tinkering with beef feed and supplements, if we're still raising cattle in feedlots, misses out on a great opportunity to raise beef in a way that heals ecosystems like Jared does. I believe the solution lies in raising cattle in harmony with the land because when you do so, the result is one, a tastier and healthier meat product, two, fewer methane emissions than cattle feedlots, three, a land that is being healed by the cattle. We should acknowledge that humans and our livestock are part of the ecosystem and feel empowered to tend our ecosystem in ways that synergize to benefit our health and the health of the environment. So, Jared, how are your cattle raised, and what do you have to say about methane emissions and beef production? Okay, Vanessa, yeah, we, um, we use the term regenerative because really it's the soil we're regenerating that underpins the whole ecosystem. And when we talk about greenhouse gases, most of the time they're talking about carbon, um, and that one is a no-brainer when it comes to the role of cattle play in the proper grazing system. In a lot of these debates in the environmental community, it is difficult because they'll say one term for grazing or cattle production, beef production, and there's 
so many different aspects to that. You can graze well or you can graze poorly uh, from an ecological standpoint. And it could be either regenerative or it could be deleterious. Um, methane specifically, as you were referring to, uh, that is a natural process of the rumen. And there is no question that methane is a greenhouse gas. I'm going to believe the, the science on that. There is some question about natural methane cycling. Uh, you know, it's a 10 to 12 year cycle in the atmosphere. And so if we look at cattle overall and the beef grazing, there are certainly problems with the traditional, well, we're going to call it modern uh, production methods in the feedlot, mostly because effluent nutrient cycling, we're, we're shipping corn grown in a very petrol intensive way uh, to the cattle. And then we have to ship their effluent and treat it out, out in the uh, pits, you know, these big lagoons. But what I would say in general is if you look at the cattle as we raised them on Rivendell, out on these pastures where they are eating a diverse array of plants, grasses, and forbs, um, you will see that the smell of the area where you would, you know, associate ammonia, which probably relates to the methane production, you can smell that it's better. Uh, if you stand in a feedlot and you smell the ammonia, you can sense what is leaking out. So I, I'm not going to defend all of beef production, um, but I also want to make people recognize that if the alternative is something like uh, artificial meats that are grown by soybean and corn in monoculture fields, that you are releasing ridiculous amounts of carbon. Uh, Petrol-intensive extractive industry does that and then of course there's the there's the miles after you raise those things to turn them into to turn them into a meat product so at the end of the day our grazing methods that are building soil are going to be sequestering and reducing overall carbon and in greenhouse gas emission uh, versus so almost any other production method and now that you've been raising cattle regeneratively on your historical sod farm, you've had some exciting experiences seeing visibly the changes in your fields. Tell us about that. Yeah, absolutely. The, the soil, like the monitoring criteria, whether it be uh, simply compaction, water infiltration, the smell of the soil, uh, the diversity of the plant life above, and generally speaking, then you see it in bigger picture interactions in that ecosystem with wildlife, you know, it comes to the, the birds and the pollinators we see and the insects. And then of course it gets all the way up to elk and deer and um, things like that on the ranch. You recognize that diversity and you can, you may not be able to measure every part of it, but you can certainly see it. You can smell it. You can hear it. Um, and that when people walk through the pastures, the longer we've been doing a pasture in the right way, you could see how much better it is than the ones we have most recently pulled out. And there are some ranchers in our area that are raising cattle free range, but it's drastically different than how you're doing it, isn't it? Well, it depends. There's varying levels of management and different styles. And there's um, our, 
you know, some trade-offs can be between animal performance and the soil health, you know, land uh, issues, because we intensively graze and many very intensively grazed systems where they are not allowed to just roam a landscape and choose free choice, um, animal performance could suffer if the, if the sward or the ration that they're getting is not well balanced. Um, so there's a trade-off there where the more intensively we can pack them in, the better it is for the soil. Um, but what we've found is it's mostly an issue of timing. There are set stock grazing. If you see a herd of cattle, even if it's only a few cattle in a very large pasture and they're left there for a long period of time, they will selectively graze um, plant species that they prefer. They will re-graze that same one during its regrowth and the diversity in that pasture will decline rapidly and lead to a predominance of a species that can handle repeated intensive grazing. And that tends to be things like smooth brome or Kentucky bluegrass like we used to sell. Um, but that is that degradation and that lack of diversity um, doesn't necessarily mean the animals are suffering, but it does mean the land is not benefiting. It's not regenerating because of that. So it's better than a feedlot but still not as good as intensive rotational grazing. And we should explain that to our listeners, what that means. Well, yeah, essentially it means picking out, based on your stock density, how many pounds of animals or number of head, however you want to calculate it, uh, that you put into a given defined area of pasture. Um, and if that pasture contains X amount of forage, how much of that forage do you want to be taken off and how much do you want to leave behind as res residual? And so what we find is that if you can pack a lot of animals, um, even 100 or 400,000 pounds of the acre, um, and leave them on for a very short period of time, they do less selective grazing, more even grazing of all the species. Um, and then you remove them while there is still green photosynthetic capacity out there, uh, while they're only taking what we call the first bite off of most plants. And that initial bite stimulates regrowth. The roots will shed, and those shed roots under the soil will become uh, organic material for decomposing microorganisms. And then the plant will start to regrow if there is some leaf, some solar panel left above the ground. And we have moved those cattle off uh, after the day or even after half a day. And as it starts to regrow, um, you need to leave it resting for long enough for that diversity in all the different types of plants. So it's a very, it's sort of an art. Um, in, in Europe, a lot of the shepherds uh, from, you know, ancient cultures, they learn this same technique instead of using polywire, polywire electric fencing like we do to control the animal movement they walk amongst them, right? Or you can have herders on on horseback, uh, ranging, range riding. And there is, there's obviously a big range of, of grazing techniques. Um, many people have seen the results of overgrazing, um, but they think about how many animals on the landscape, but it's really more a function of how long they've been there and how often they go back. So, you know, we're, the, the rotational grazing we use, and there's different all kinds of names uh, out there, commercial, and usually it's because they've written a book, you know, whether it's management, intensive grazing, 
or Savory's Holistically Managed Grazing. Which makes it a little confusing. It can for sure, especially for a producer that wants to know which it is. Uh, Jim Garish is the management intensive grazing, and in his class that I took, he talks about all the different names for it. The reality is, whether you call it you know, adaptive grazing, which I like the word adaptive, um, but it's also intensive because it tends to be that you're, you're putting animals um, on at a higher density, but it's not extensive, meaning you're not putting them there all over big areas. So that, that grazing distinction and then how, if you have a cow-calf operation, it would vary from ours, which is very different. It's a finishing operation, right? We're trying to get animals to the finish line uh, to, to become meat on your plate. And so there's different uh, techniques. There are some, you know, there's some subtleties in grazing that people argue about, even if they're, quote-unquote, in regenerative spaces. And I, you know, it's a healthy debate, uh, and there can be mistakes made. And if the system resi- is resilient because it is diverse, it can also recover very quickly from those things. But a long pattern, like you see on some public lands in the West, of overgrazing is uh, is definitely deleterious. And I would say that from a broader picture, that is much more of a risk to global warming than beef cattle in general. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, the, it's the misapplication of those things. Well, one of the articles was about experimenting with different types of feeds to give to cattle, but it was a very controlled environment and seemed like it was designed to be able to reduce the methane emissions from feedlots, but also the benefits of regenerative agriculture on the land and the soil health and the building of organic matter just seemed to drastically supersede any of those methane emissions that may that are occurring um so um there was one about adding seaweed to the cattle's diet which seems reasonable and seaweed is a great amendment for plants so i it seems to make sense but if you're importing that seaweed from far away that would be contributing to your carbon footprint and um you had the idea that there might be other types of amendments from plants that might be reducing methane emissions. Well, sure. They do talk about kelp or I guess seaweed in this particular case, a specific species of kelp or seaweed that as they feed it, it reduces methane must be by some interaction uh, in the rumen with the, with the biota in there, uh, perhaps on an enzymatic level too. But you think about what seaweed brings to the table is also a lot of micronutrients and biostimulants. Um, So, I could see that a very diverse pasture sward also, and, and we know that certain types of tannins can also reduce that. Uh, you know, they've studied garlic and all kinds of things. Well, there are tannins in some of the species that we tried to, to put in our pastures. Um, the sandfoins, the birdfoot trefoil, we, had, we originally used them in order to counteract the bloat potential of alfalfa because it will bind to the proteins in the alfalfa and act like an, a natural bloat inhibitor. But Clearly, some of these things, it's very permaculture to have multiple uses for the same, for the same uh, tool. And in this case, I'm not opposed to feeding something you know, extraneous, but shipping seaweed from the coast to the mountains of Colorado seems a bit like a stretch, um, at least much of it. And so if I could grow a pasture that those cattle could um, ingest along with the other grasses and alfalfas that they grow that would 
reduce their methane. I'm, I'm all for it, but I would say that my focus would be on the cattle health and performance and land. And I would suspect that, um, like most things, the benefit would show up in methane as well. All right. Well, that was our deep dive into methane emissions from cattle production. And let's delve into another quote-unquote myth to bust. So there's been a story recently about paying farmers not to farm for the sake of water conservation. And this is going to be a temporary fix for three years until they're able to figure out something better in three years' time. But it just seems crazy to me that because agriculture performed regeneratively is healing the land immensely and can help replenish water supplies. So I feel like we should be paying farmers to farm regeneratively or to train farmers to farm regeneratively. And I also don't like the idea that we're making farmers feel guilty about farming. Um, We should accept that as humans, we are part of the environment and it is our duty to steward and tend by farming the environment and not uh, resort to these reductionist fixes that aren't sustainable and set us up for failure in the long term. We need permanent agriculture. So what would you say about your water situation at your farm and your thoughts on paying farmers not to farm for the sake of water conservation? Well, I mean, water is a, is a, is a complicated topic. And in each individual farming scenario, there's, there's variables. Um, but I would say that paying someone not to farm um, or not to irrigate, if that is also part of that equation, it would have to be very case by case, whether that was beneficial to the water cycle locally or not. Uh, You know, many farmers will say that their irrigation is what uh, maintains the water table, particularly in traditional flood irrigation. We've been using, I guess you would call it improved um, efficiency irrigation, meaning overhead sprinkler heads and, and center pivots. They are more efficient but clearly they don't recharge the aquifer quite the same way. But in our specific case, all of ours is spring water, um, and, and it either gets used on the farm or it soaks down into the ground farther down the valley. And so it's a little tricky to look at my farm other than soil health, and it's how the irrigation practices uh, relate to that. And one thing you'll notice uh, because of the use it or lose it water right situation on most farms is that they'll be irrigating uh, rain, shine, what well, doesn't make any difference. They're going to keep pumping water because they have to use that on their seasonal allotment or they might be in jeopardy of losing it. You know, and there's there's some creative efforts. Bill Fails has been one who's maybe being offered a, a way to, to return some of his water to the, to the river, to the crystal, uh, with some assurances that he won't lose his water. And and there's some creative things that you could do in that way. But when people are overwatering, they're also not, not only maybe wasting water, but they're hurting their soil capacity. They're sometimes filling that pore space, becoming anaerobic, certainly leaching out nutrients that would otherwise be able to cling into that soil profile. And it can lead to further pasture. I mean, there may be a lot of growth there, but it's only going to be certain grasses, um, you know, again, the smooth brome or, or even reed canary that, that really can tolerate a, a more anaerobic soil and they will lose biodiversity out there in the pasture. 
So in my, my fields, it is important to only water as much as it replenishes the system and maximizes the, you know, the plant photosynthetic capacity. Cause at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to maximize is converting sunshine into sugar. Um, and that feeds the soil that feeds the plants and it feeds the animals in the end. And what about mechanical methods for capturing and storing and sinking more water on the farm through earthworks? Well, and, and that's a very, you know, doing swales, permaculture, um, geological formations in order to slow down water. Beavers are probably better at that than any of us. Um, but the reality is that the infiltration rate of the soil, and which directly ties to its soil health and the, the, the soil structure that is primarily a result of the organic glues from bacteria and, and fungi, it almost is irrelevant. Um, what the shape of the surface is, but when a droplet hits, if that soil is very well structured by these various organic glues, uh, that water infiltration rate is so high that you know if you if you get a rain, you want to catch all of it, you know, and that um, and not have it run off, and that's going to make the biggest difference. Your wetlands will be healthier. Uh, they won't fill up at every rain, but they'll stay fuller throughout most of the year, which leads probably to more stable methane cycling in those as well, which is a huge source of methane, is those bogs and, and wetlands. So, at, you know, at the end of the day, trying to efficiently, and, and that's a bigger word than just how many gallons per acre you're putting on, but how efficiently that water is getting to roots, how deep those roots are, how deep the the soil profile will absorb and then how long it'll hold on to it. And we've seen in our farm drastic improvements um, the longer we don't use synthetic fertilizer, the longer we don't till, um, and the more animal impact we get. Uh, we, don't, we don't get floods when the snow melts in the spring anymore. That just soaks in. And even this year, we had very, very little surface running, even though we had a tremendous amount of snow melting. So that proves that the water cycle is improved by our, by our management. And I believe that if you paid somebody like us not to farm, it would be worse. Now, if you're paying somebody who is monocropping not to farm and pump a bunch of water, it could probably help. So again, it's very situationally dependent. Well, it's always a pleasure to hear your wise and thoughtful analyses of farming hmm. and the world around you. But I do want to leave time in the program for you to tell us about the state of the farm at Rivendell Farms. And by the way, I should give a shout out to our wonderful employees this year, Sam and Carrie and Sophia. So at the farm, what's new this year? What challenges are you facing? And what would you like our listeners to know about your operation? Well, it's a beautiful spring on the farm. I mean, the weather's been so cool. Um, and we very locally haven't had as much rain as other places, but it's a, a beautiful year. Now, we are still trying to market our grass-finished beef. Uh, we have been making some inroads, selling it through Mana Foods. They've been really helpful, and we've got a lot of people on our side. Um, you know, Kate Collins wrote an article <laughs> about us, and it, it's gotten well-received. And, uh, and our friend uh, George Ware... You know, he's a water engineer has been helping with our irrigation plan, and that's very helpful. All these people are supporting us, but we do have um, a ways to go in that marketing, you know, and if we're going to make that a viable enterprise on our farm that can help to offset the reduction in the sod sales, 
that's something we're going to be focusing on. Um, we do have a lot of infrastructure needs and, and the cash flows on a farm when we're not selling enough, you know, that can make it tricky. So we are going to be actively exploring, uh, maybe seeking investment, uh, whether people want to help invest, I'd, you know, in the, the land project or in the, in the operation of Rivendell Farms, this sort of collaborative farming effort. We've got Jean-Viev coming on with her Native Grasses and Forbes enterprise, and she's trying to get that rolling. Uh, your Colorado Edible Forest is looking gorgeous. We need to get more foot traffic up there, uh, you know, getting heritage fruit trees from you. And then um, beef, we just need to keep getting people doing some orders, um, you know, ordering it, see if you can get some interest from your neighbors and and um, we're going to keep pushing uh, to see if we can't make these enterprises that are regenerative and healing actually pay uh, the high land costs you know and if we can get some investors to help with that you know it's something we'll be looking for um, or people have creative ideas of, of multi-enterprises and we might even try to seek out other other farming enterprises if people want to join our team up there and have a creative thing they want to tackle, whether it be, you know, flowers, perennials, herbs, you know, anything, we, we would be definitely open to uh, to looking into those things. But I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, it's it's um, a beautiful farm, 160 acres, 180. 180, yeah. And um, I so appreciate your vision and the team that you've been forming that now orbits around the Rivendell farm world. So I greatly want for it to succeed and now a plug for Jared's Beef. Plus, Lazy K Beef at Rivendell Farms is definitely the best beef I've eaten because of the flavor. It has the terroir of the mountains, the lack of guilt. During their lifetime, the cattle helped build topsoil and a robust, healthy ecosystem that Jared was describing to us. And grass-fed and finished beef has higher levels of omega-3 fatty acids and conjugated linoleic acid, known as CLA, than conventional yes. grain finished beef. So actually in the future, you are interested in possibly also doing some nutrient testing. So in short, it's nutrient dense beef that's good for you, good for the earth and tastes amazing. So if any of our listeners are interested in trying, you can shop online by going to rivendellbeef.com and Rivendell is spelled R-I-V-E-N-D-E-L-L. -L. You can pick up your order at the farm or have it shipped right to your doorstep. Everything is dry-aged for 14 days, packaged with care and frozen, and it'll last up to two years when frozen properly. If you'd like to learn more from Jared or arrange a farm tour, Jared can be reached at jared at rivendellfarms.co or 970-230-0350. And before I let you go, Jared, I have to do Jerome the diligence of announcing his upcoming permaculture design certification course. The acronym is a PDC. That's going to be held in Paonia, Colorado. At this permaculture design certification course, you'll learn the knowledge and skills to design resilient, regenerative, and sustainable systems in harmony with nature. It's going to be held at the North Fork River Organic Farm and Ranch from July 17th to 23rd. So if anybody is interested in signing up for that PDC, you can go to crmpi.org. Jared, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule saving the planet to cool. help us debunk some environmentalist myths. And thank you so much to our listeners for listening to Living Permaculture on KDNK. Thanks, we'll talk Vanessa. to you next month. Thank you. <laughs>